0: Chapter 12. Of The Beloved Vagabond by William John Locke. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Chapter 12. Me dis Castico, said Blanquette, holding a half egg shell in each hand while the yolk and white fell into the bowl. Who was the lady that came last night and wanted to see the master? you better ask him, said I. I have done so, but he will not tell me. What did he say? He told me to ask the serpent. I don't know what he meant, said Blanquette. I explained the allusion to the curiosity of Eve. But, objected the literal Blanquette, there is no serpent in the rue des Saladiers, unless it is you. You've beaten those eggs enough, I remarked. You can teach me many things, but how to make omelettes, I'll know. All right, said I. When your inordinate curiosity has spoiled the thing, don't blame me. She's very pretty, said Blanquette. Pretty, pretty. She's entirely adorable." Blanquette sighed. She must have a great many lovers. Blanquette, cried I, scandalised, she's married. Naturally, if she weren't, she could not have lovers. I wish I were only half as beautiful. The lump of butter cast into the frying-pan sizzled, and Blanquette sighed again. I must explain that I had come, as I often did, to share Parago's midday meal. But, as he was still abed, Blanquette had enticed me into her tiny kitchen. The omelette, being for my sole consumption, I may be pardoned for my interest in its concoction. So that you could be married and have lovers? I asked in a superior way. Too many lovers make life unhappy, she replied sagely. If I were pretty, I should only want one, one to love me for myself. And for what are you love now? For my omelettes she said, with a deft turn of the frying-pan. Blanquette, said I, je t'adore. She laughed with an and ministered to my wants as I sat down to my meal at a corner of the kitchen table. She loved this. Great as was her pride in the speckless and orderly salon, she never felt at her ease there. In the kitchen she was herself at home and could do the honours as hostess. Do you think the beautiful lady is in love with the master? You have been reading the Feuilleton of the Petit Journal, and your head is full of sentimental nonsense, I cried. It is not nonsense for a woman to love the master. Oh, I exclaimed, teasingly. Perhaps you are in love with him, too. She turned her back on me and began to clean a spotless casserole. Mange ton omelette, she said. My meal over, I went to Parago's room. I found him in bed, not as usual pipe in mouth and a tattered volume in his hand, but lying on his back his arms crossed beneath his head, staring into the white curtains of which Blanquette was so proud. My son, said he, after he had inquired after my welfare and my lunch, and advised me as to cooling medicaments wherewith to mitigate a certain pimpless condition of cheek, my son, I want you to make me a promise. Swear that if a hitch occurs in your scheme of the cosmos, you will not break up your furniture with the crusader's mace. Such a proceeding has infinite consequences of effraction. It disrupts your existence, and ends with the irreparable smash of your porcelain pipe. Whereupon he asked me for a cigarette, and began to smoke reflectively. One ought to order one's scheme so that no hitch can occur, said I. As far as I can gather from the theologians, that is beyond the power even of the Almighty, said Parago. Bronketer appeared with the morning absinthe. The hitch, my son, in my case, was beyond mortal control he said, looking up at the bed-curtains. You may think that I caused it in the first place. You heard me last night accused of cruelty. You, discreet little image that you are, know more about things than I thought. And yet you must wonder, now that you are nearly a man, what can be, what can have been, between this disreputable, hairy, scallywag who is eating the bread of idleness and, with a sip of his absinthe, drinking the waters of destruction, and that fair creature of dainty life. Don't judge anyone, my elastico He sumus qui omnibus veris falsa quodam ESSE dicabus, tanta similitudine, ut in is nulla isnisit certe judicandi et essentiendi nota. That is Cicero, an author to whom I regret I have not been able to introduce you, and it means that the false is so mingled with the true and looks so like it that there is no sure mark whereby we may distinguish one from the other. It is a damned fool of a world. In this chastened mood, I left him. I learned later in the day that the appearance of the Comtesse in the Café Delphine and the exodus of Paragot had caused no small sensation. cazalet had peeped through the glass door. Cré, nom de nom, she is driving him off in her own carriage. He returned to the table and drank a glass of anisette to steady his nerves. Who was the lady? Evidently, Paragot was leading a double life. Madame Bois nodded her head mysteriously, as though possessed of secrets she would not divulge. They spent the evening in profitless conjecture. The fact remained that Paragot, the hairy, disreputable Scallywag, had relations with a high-born and beautiful woman. It was stupefying. C'était bront. That was the final word. When the courtier latin calls a thing abracatabronte, there is no more to be said. Café Delphine was far from being the school of discretion and good manners that Paragot frequented in his youth, but such was his personal influence that when he reappeared in his usual place, no one dared allude to the disconcerting incident. Paragot had recovered from the chastened mood, and was gay, rabelaisian, and with great gestures talked of all subjects under heaven. One of the international exhibitions was in prospect, and many architects' offices were busy with projects for the new buildings. A discussion on these having arisen, two of our company were architectural students, Paragot declared that the exhibition would be incomplete without a Palais de Dipsomeni. Indeed, it should be the central feature. Tiens, he cried, I have an inspiration. Someone give me a soft black pencil. Hercule, clear the table. He caught the napkin from beneath Hercule's arm, and as soon as the glasses were removed, he dried the marble top and holding the pencil draughtsman's fashion, a couple of inches from the point, began to draw with feverish haste. His long fingers worked magically. We bent over him, holding our breath, as gradually emerged the most marvellous, weird, riotous dream of drunken architecture the world could ever behold. There were columns admirably indicated upside down. The domes looked like tops of half-inflated balloons. Enormous buttresses supporting nothing leaned incapable against the building. Bottles and wine cups formed part of the mad construction. Satyrs' heads leered instead of windows. The whole palace looked reading drunk. It was a tremendous feat of imagination and skill. The hour he spent in elaborating it passed like five minutes. When he finished, he threw down his pencil. Voila! Then he called for his drink and emptied the glass at a gulp. We all clamoured our admiration. But Parago! cried one of the architectural students in considerable excitement. You are a trained architect and a great architect. It is the work of a genius. Garnier himself could not have done it. Parago whipped up the napkin from the seat and before we could protest rubbed the drawing into a black smudge. I am a poet, painter, architect, musician and philosopher, mon petit bibi, said he, and my name is Berselius Nibidad Parago. It was growing late and we all rose in a body except Parago, who made a point of remaining after everyone had gone. He caught me by the sleeve. "'Stay a bit tonight, my little astico,' said he. Usually he would not allow me to remain late at the café. It was bad for my health, and indeed I was not supposed to waste my time thus more than two evenings a week. Parago did not include my seeing him make an elo of himself as part of my education. This was the theory at the back of his mind.' In practice, it had occurred at intervals since the days, or nights, of the Lotus Club. Arago ordered another drink. It was astonishing, said he, how provocative of thirst was any diversion from the ordinary course of life. If the pig of the Café Cordier had been human, he remarked, he would have sat down and consumed intoxicating liquors instead of throwing himself under the wheels of an omnibus. My son, he said with solemn eyes, reverence that pig, It is few of us who have his courage and single-heartedness. He went on talking for some time in a semi-coherent strain, clouding over with dim illusions the vital idea which, I very believe, had I been a kind woman of the world instead of a raw youth of nineteen, he would have crystallised with flaming speech. I could only listen to him dumbly, vaguely divinatory through my love for him, and I suppose through a certain temperamental sensitiveness. But alas! uncomprehending by reason of my inexperience in the deeps of my life. Presently he announced that he was ready to start. He walked, somewhat unsteadily, to the door, his hand on my shoulder. My little son, Astico, said he on the threshold, I am so far on my road to immortality that I ought to have vine-leaves in my hair, instead of which I have wormwood in my heart. Will you kindly take me to the poor "My But dear master, said I, what on earth are you going to do there? I have something important to say to Henri You can say it better, I urged, in the Rue des Saladiers. To the Pont-Neuf, said he brusquely, pushing me away. I had to humour him. We started up the Boulevard Saint-Michel. It was drizzling with rain. Master, we'd better go home. He did not reply, but strode on. I have a cat-like dislike of rain. I bear it philosophically, but that is all. To carry on a conversation during a persistent downpour is beyond my powers. I might as well try to sing under water. who ordinarily was indifferent to the season's difference, and would discourse gaily in a deluge, walked on in silence. We went along amid the umbrella-covered crowd, past the steaming terraces of cafes, whose lights set the kiosks in a steady glare and sent shafts of yellow from the top of stationary cabs, and caught the wet passing traffic in livid flashes and illuminated faces to an unreal significance. Down the gloom-enveloped, silent quay, frowned upon by the dim and monstrous masses of architecture, guarding the Seine like phantasmagorical bastions, none visible in outline, but only felt looming in the rain-filled night, until we reached the statue of Parago's tutelary king. The rain fell miserably. We were wet through. I put my hand on his dripping sleeve. Master, let me see you home. He shook me off roughly. You can go. But dear master, I implored. He put both hands behind his head and threw out his arms in a great gesture. Boy, can't you see, cried he, that I am in agony of soul? I bent my head and went away. God knows what he said to haudi I suppose each of us has a pet Gethsemane of his own. One night, a few weeks later, Blanquette appeared in my little student's attic. Fired by the example of some of my comrades at Jano's, who showed glistening five-franc pieces as the rewards of industry, I was working up a drawing which I fondly hoped I could sell to a comic paper. Youth is the period of insensate ambitions. I put down my charcoal as Blanquette entered, bareheaded. Wise girl, she scorned hats and bonnets, and as neatly dressed as her figure, daily growing dumpier, would allow. She was laughing. "'Guess what your has said?' "'That it was improper for you to come to see me at this hour of the night?' "'Improper, bah!' cried Blanquette, for whom such conventions existed not. "'But you told me it was a jolie petit amant that I had upstairs. "'What an idea!' she laughed again. "'You find that funny?' I asked, my dignity somewhat ruffled. "'I suppose I am as pretty a little lover as anyone else.' "'But you and me, Astico, it is so droll!' If you put it that way, I admit it, it is. But the concierge doesn't think it possible that you are not my maîtresse. Why otherwise should you be running in and out of my room, as if it belonged to you? You will be bringing a maîtresse of your own here soon, and then you won't want Blanquette any longer. I dismissed the idea as one too remote for contemplation. At the same time, I reflected that I kissed a pretty model of Janot's when we met alone on the stairs. I wondered whether the diabolical perspicacity of women had seen traces of the kiss on my lips. "'I disturb you?' she asked, drawing up my other wooden chair to the deal table and sitting down. "'Why, no, I can work while you talk.' She put her elbow on a couple of pickled gherkins that remained casually on the table after a perambulatory meal. "'Oh, how dirty men are! You are worse than the master! Oh, la, la, and he puts his boots and his dirty plates together on his bed!' It is time that you did have a maîtresse to keep the place in order. I believe you really do want to come here in that capacity, I said laughingly. She flushed at the jest and drew herself up. You have no right to say that, Astico. I would sooner be the master's servant than the mistress or even the wife of any man living. He is everything to me, my little Astico. Everything. Do you hear? Although he loves me just as he loves you and Narcisse, You ne faut pas te moquer de moi. You must not laugh at me. It hurts me. It was only then, for the first time, that I realised in Blanquette a grown woman. Hitherto I had regarded her merely as a female waif, picked up like the dog, and myself, under Paragot's vagabond arm, and attached to him by ties of gratitude. Now, lo and behold, she was a woman, talking of deep things with a treacherous throb in her voice. I reached across the table and took one of her coarse hands. Et tu l'aime donc, ma pauvre Blanquette? I exclaimed in sympathy and consternation. She looked down and nodded. I did not know what to say. A tear fell on my hand. I knew still less. Then, crying out, she was very unhappy. She began to sob. He does not want me even to pass the time. It has never entered his head. I am too ugly. I do not demand that he should love me. It would be asking for the moon. But he does love you like a father, I said in vain consolation. I love him like a son, and you should love him like a daughter. She did not even condescend to notice this counsel of perfection. She was too ugly. She was built like a hayrick. The master had never cast his eyes on her, as doubtless he would have done, being a man, had she any of the qualities of allurement. She suffered, poor Blanquette, from the spreta injuriae formae with reason even more solid than the forsaken Dido. He was humble, she sobbed. She did not demand a bit of love bigger than that and she clicked her fingernail. With that she would be proud and happy. If the master were as gay as he used to be, I should not mind, she said, lifting a grotesquely stained face. But when he goes drinking, drinking so as to drown his love for another woman, c'est plus fort que moi. It is more than I can bear. Which other woman? You know very well that beautiful lady. She has come more than once to fetch him away. He is a wicked woman, for she does not love him. She even detests him, one can see that. I should like to kill her, cried Blanquette. The idea of anyone wanting to kill Joanna was so novel that I stared at her, speechless. It took some time for my wits to accommodate themselves to the point of view. If I were a man, I would not drink myself to death for the sake of a woman who treated me so, she remarked, recovering her composure. Is it as bad as that? I asked. She shrugged her shoulders. Members drink, it is their nature, but there should be limits. One ought to be reasonable, even a man. Did I not think so? In a matter-of-fact way she gave me details of Paragos' habits. The one morning absinthe had grown to two or three. There was brandy, too, in his bedroom. And indeed such a deal of money, my little Astico, she remarked. After which, to relieve her feelings, she washed up my dirty plates and discoursed on the economics of catering. I walked with her through the two or three streets that separated me from the Rue des Saladiers and went upstairs with her to see whether Paragot had returned. It was past midnight. There was no Paragot. I went to the Café Delphine, profoundly depressed by Blanquette's story. Here was Blanquette eating her heart out for Paragot, who was killing his soul for Joanna, who was miserably unhappy on account of her husband, who was suffering some penalty for his scaly-headed vulturedom. It was a kind of house that Jack built, tale of misery, of which I seemed to be the foundation. Safe for Padigo, the café was empty. He was asleep in his usual corner, breathing stertorously, his head against the wall. Madame Bois, on her throne, was busy over accounts. Hercule dozed at a table by the door, his napkin in the crook of his arm. He nodded towards Padigo as I entered, and made a helpless gesture. "'I looked at the huddled figure against the wall "'and wondered how the deuce I was to take him home. "'I had no money to pay for a cab. "'I tried in vain to rouse him. "'Monsieur had better let him stay here,' said Hercule. "'It won't be the first time.' "'My heart grew even heavier than it was before. "'No wonder poor Blanquette was dismayed. "'He will catch his death of cold when the morning comes,' said I, "'for the night was fresh, and three years of warm lying had softened the paragon of vagrant days. "'One must die sooner or later,' moralised Hergul inhumanly. I shook my master again. He grunted. I shook him more violently. To my relief he opened his eyes, smiled at me, and waved a limp salutation. "'The Palace of Dipsomania, he murmured. "'No, master,' said I, "'this is the Café Delphine, and you live in the Rue des Saladiers.' It is a nuisance to live anywhere. I was born to be a bird, to roost on trees. I had considerable difficulty in disentangling the words from his thick speech. He shut his eyes, then opened them again. How does a drunken owl stay on his twig? As I felt no interest in the domestic habits of dissolute owls, I set about getting him home. I took his green hat from the peg and put it on his head, and, with Urku's help, "'drew away the table and set him on his feet. "'A man like that, it goes to my heart,' said Madame Boin in a low voice. "'I felt unreasonably angry that anyone, save myself or perhaps Blanquette, "'should pity my beloved master. "'I did not answer, whereby I am afraid I was rude to the good Madame Bois. "'Padegold lurched forward and would have fallen had not Hercu caught and steadied him. "'Broken ankle!' exclaimed Padigo. You must try to walk, master, I urged anxiously. How was I to get him to the Rue de Saladier? His arm round my neck weighed cruelly on my frail body. Put best foot forward, he murmured, making a step and pausing. That is very easy, but the devil of it is when time comes for worst foot. Try it, for goodness sake, said I. He tried it with a silly laugh. Then the swing door of the café opened, and Joanna, with her sweet frightened face appeared on the threshold. End of chapter 12